0: Welcome back to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Glad to have you along today for the podcast of the Acton Institute. We've got another good one lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about the topic of American exceptionalism. Now, this is something that has been discussed throughout American history. It's the idea that America is a special nation. America is a nation that is uh, blessed uniquely by God or has certain special characteristics that will make it something uh, akin to a a light or a beacon among nations. And uh, from time to time, the question comes up, well, is America going to continue to be that way? Was America ever that way? And will it continue to be that way if it is? With the advent of the Obama administration, there are a lot of people who are questioning whether or not America is now in decline, or if America is sort of purposefully... Uh, becoming more like Europe, more secular, more statist, a little bit more socialist. These are all questions that are very relevant right now, and to discuss them with us today, we have a couple of guests in studio. First of all, Dr. John C. Pinheiro, author of uh, Manifest Ambition, professor of history at Aquinas College. Dr. Pinheiro, welcome. Thank
1: you very much. Glad Hello. to be
0: here. Glad to have you today. With us also, the... Um, Managing Editor of Religion and Liberty here at the Acton Institute, Ray Nostein is here. Ray, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. And Jordan Baller, the Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, also here today. Jordan, glad to have you in the studios.
2: Excellent to be here as always with you, Mark.
0: Thanks, Jordan. (laughs) That sounded real sincere. Thanks. I appreciate that. Well, we're going to start out uh, by tossing the the obvious question to the professor of history in the room, and that is uh, for Dr. Pinheiro. What do we mean when we say American exceptionalism? What is that? I, I know it's a term that sometimes gets used differently by different people in different contexts. Why don't you give us a little, I guess, a thumbnail sketch of what is American exceptionalism?
1: Well, American exceptionalism is a term is, is very malleable, so it really does depend on who's asking the question, uh, because it, there, there's probably an answer that they would, they would like to have. And I would say to define American exceptionalism, we really have to pick our time period, We've got to pick who's asking the question, and we also want to know, is this person referring to some sort of special blessing bestowed by God upon Americans in particular, as you alluded to, or are they just talking about distinctive attributes that Americans might have? Because all nations, I think, are going to have distinctive attributes, or at least at least a couple, at least one, one would hope, Sure. right? Uh, so certainly all nations would have that, but whether those attributes give that nation a right to rule others in the name of God or not, or in the name of their specialness. Uh, I think that, that that, of course, needs to be determined, and I would probably think the answer is no. Uh, but uh, in in the case of American exceptionalism, before Americans even called themselves that, when they were English colonists, they already thought they had some kind of special mission to the world. Uh, when that special mission didn't quite pan out, as maybe we'll talk about in a few minutes, they then looked at the American continent and wondered, well, what's our special mission on this continent? Uh, we have this whole continent and no one seems to be able to take it from us. Uh, maybe God really is favoring us. And by the time we get to the 20th century, uh, it's the American role perhaps in, in the Cold War as a bulwark of freedom against the despotism of the Soviet Union. The evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it, who drew on the words of John Winthrop from way back in colonial times to mention the city on a hill, as have uh, other presidents, including President Obama, whom mm-hmm. you mentioned. Mm-hmm.
0: It, that's interesting. Uh, it, could you expand a little bit about, on that special mission to the world that the colonists thought they might have that ended up not panning out? that ended up not panning out. I guess I would dr- I would be drawing here from the historian Perry Miller, who,
1: interesting enough, was, it, was an atheist. However, it was Perry Miller who reinserted religion into the study of American history, even into the study of the Puritans. And one might think now, well, that sounds uh, natural, isn't it? When you talk about the Puritans, you must talk about religion. Uh, but it really wasn't at the time in the 1940s. And so what Miller did was go back and look at the Puritans, and he wrote this essay called Aaron into the Wilderness. And Hmm. "Arid into the Wilderness was also the name of of a famous sermon from the 1670s, an Election Day sermon. And what he said about the "Arid into the Wilderness was that the Puritans came to America in 1629, 1630, uh, led by John Winthrop. And in John Winthrop's uh, sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, which he delivered on board ship on the way, Winthrop talked about their settlement being a shining city upon a hill. And what he meant was he hoped that city on a hill would be a beacon for Europeans to see and to convert themselves to a purer Christianity, and in particular for that to happen, of course, in England, so that the Church of England finally could be purified. So that, in that sense, their mission was not centered on the Americas where they were settling. It was centered on Europe and how they wanted to transform Europe.
0: It was almost like a mission of reform
1: a mission of reform we can't live out our religion here in the stour river valley uh, in cambridge we can't live it out here we're being oppressed by the church of england and its bishops so we'll go live in america and we'll set up these independent congregations and we'll show them that a that a pure christian society is possible in this world well when that didn't turn when that turned out not to be the case miller says uh their mission having failed they were left alone with america and then the mission's going to evolve from there. that is, if you already have a sense of a special chosenness, how that 's going to pan out over time as American culture developed over the next several hundred years is of course uh, what we 're talking about today I think
2: yeah, let me just add that the 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 sketch that uh, Dr. Pinero just laid out for us is is a great one to start with and um, in terms of contextualizing the idea of American exceptionalism it's important to point that some of the major themes. Of the Reformation historiography of the sixteenth century come up again in the account that we just heard. So, um, one of the themes is the, the the idea of a refugee Reformation, so that um, you you seek a place of refuge from from where a place at which you can um, institute the form of the church that you think is the right one. Um, So Geneva might be an example of that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's specifically the idea that um, relative to the Church of Rome, for example, we can reform our churches, reform our social life, reform our social order. Um, And you can see this in the sort of further Reformation attempts that are going on by the Puritans, Um, In some cases, uh, among not a which means further reformation among the pietists and other sorts in in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is a sort of natural outgrowth in some ways to seek a refuge, a a place in the wilderness, um, so that you can be an example uh, and even a a, a a source of a base, a home base for the further reformation, um, the cause of Christ in the world.
0: Well, following up on what Jordan just said, there, the, it seems to me that there, there. Well, let let me put it this way: Is there a distinctly Protestant character to American exceptionalism? It seems like there's a lot of of, of themes that were drawn out of the Reformation. Um, is uh, How does that play into the overall religious roots of American exceptionalism?
1: If we think of culture as an artificial human creation, which is how I think of it, and I, I get that from the, the English historian Christopher Dawson, if we think of it in that sense, we, we have to pay a lot of attention to the culture that first settled in the English colonies. And they were, by and large, in New England at least, Uh, which was going to be the intellectual and spiritual home of of a lot of Americans, at least a driving force behind American intellectualism, and was going to give the United States its most important religious leaders and thinkers and and, and writers for for quite some time. If we think about the importance of New England, then I would say the answer to your question is that, that, yes, in fact, American exceptionalism does have very distinctively Protestant roots, but particularly among the Puritans who called themselves the godly, but who thought that the Reformation in the Church of England had not gone far enough. And so, of course, that's why they're going to the United States, to prove that it could go further, and that uh, God will bless you, perhaps, if it goes further. I- I'm not so sure. I may be getting on theological weak ground uh, there. <laughs> I don't want don't to get into Puritan theology by <laughs> by any means, and whether they're earning anything, because I, I would assume they're not, of course. But uh, uh, But as that evolves over time by the 1830s and 1840s in the United States with substantial Irish and German Catholic immigration, that's really the big question of the mid-19th century for Americans and, and what my next book is going to be about, a re- really a religious history of that period, vis-a-vis how this this anti-Catholic strain in the in the founding period mm-hmm. of the colonies, how that's going to play out over time when there are a large number of Catholics and whether those Catholics can be uh, good Republican Americans, like the Protestant and native-born Americans, and, and, and that making, question.
0: We should make the point too. We're talking small R Republican, yes, as in Republicanism, so, so not the party. Those who
1: believe in popular sovereignty, representative government, uh, and the idea that the free society is is the best society. Mm-hmm and that your loyalties in a society like that actually ought to be to the society and anybody who has loyalties that might seem like they're to somebody else a pope in Rome for instance across the sea or a monarch in England let's say across the sea are yep. uh, you gonna be very suspicious of those people uh, because they might water down your your mission to the world
0: why don't we draw this thread of American conceptualism we've gotten up into the mid-1800s now can we pull it a little bit further along and see how this exists uh, even up to today
3: well, one of other thing that that's, uh, John mentioned that was very, very important for American Exceptionalism was the Cold War. Of course, Ronald Reagan is really going to make that connect with um, not only the founding, but with the Winthrop Sermon that was already mentioned, a model of Christian charity. What Reagan does... Is when he challenges Gerald Ford in 1975, 1976, an incumbent president of his own party. When he challenges him in the primary, a lot of things are going on. Where there's there's kind of this dour aspect of um, views about of America, withdrawal from Vietnam, uh, the Panama Canal becomes a big issue. America looked like looks like it's weakening itself to the Soviets around the world. I mean, these are um, emotional issues. That Reagan ties with the Shining City on the Hill line that he becomes to incorporate in a lot of his stump speeches with a massive, massive popularity. And, of course, you have uh, the, the Bicentennial that's coming up. So there's, there's a lot of people that want to have pride and optimism about America again. And you really see that. Uh, that plays out into conservative politics up to today, and which has already been mentioned with Obama, with the Obama administration. And of course, there's that famous quote that have, that has irked off a lot of uh, conservatives about I believe in American exceptionalism, in the same fashion that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism, or the Greeks believe mm, in, yeah. in, in uh, Greek exceptionalism. Sure. So there, there's a suspicion uh, of the person in the White House with, with an element of the the populace in terms of where are we headed? Are we headed, like that has already been mentioned, in a more European direction? Or are we going to hold fast to the ideals that founded this republic and that really um, have a long, long history and association with uh, Western dem- democracy, uh, with um, with the ideals really at our founding?
0: It's It's interesting in a sense that American exceptionalism at this point in our history is sort of, Uh, It's almost baked into the cake of what America is. When when people talk, I I think of um, the situation in current politics right now where we've had uh, a a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president who have, uh, I think it's fair to say, attempted to move the country a little bit more towards the European social democracy model. There's a certain segment of the population, and I think we can say a significant segment of the population, that just doesn't want to accept that. They don't want to move in the direction of being like Europe, being a little bit more social democratic, a little bit more statist, because we're Americans, and Americans aren't like that. We don't rely on other people or the state or the government or whatever you want to say. We're individualist. um, We're special. We're different.
2: Yeah. Well, Mark, let me just say... In in relation to what Ray said and what you just said, that I think the one of the proximate context to what's going on in the contemporary uh, debates uh, about American exceptionalism, especially Obama's comments and some of these things, people trying to draw back, chasten, in, rein in uh, the idea of American exceptionalism um, has. I mean, the, the proximate context to me is really the the two wars that have been we've been fighting and George yeah. Bush's rhetoric about. Um, Again, invoking this old idea of America that we've got a special mission—the um, the, the the fire of liberty is in the heart of every person, and it's our job, in some sense, to bring democracy uh, t- to the world. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This that sort of vision is very clearly a version of American exceptionalism, and it's it's uh, the reaction to the success or lack thereof in the last decade or so that I think many people are trying to chase in that and say, um, you know, if. If American exceptionalism leads to nation-building and spreading our military throughout the world and having all these sorts of other consequences in terms of foreign policy, then maybe it's not such a good idea in its robust form that we've heard it articulated.
0: Sure, and the other side of that coin is that when people do explicitly try to chasten it, it comes back. It seems to me that it's a very vibrant theme in American life.
1: It it seems to me we're talking about two angles on this, and and one is how How are we defining American exceptionalism, but the other is certainly once we've defined it, then what what are the consequences? because if American exceptionalism is wrapped up with some kind of sense of manifest destiny, like in the nineteenth century, uh, then it becomes an avenue for for conquest mm-hmm. yep. or for spreading one's military or or forcing one's uh, system of government. On on others, True. We're trying to give them the gift of that system of government, and assuming they want it, or that they have the traditions, customs, and values that would enable them to uh, to partake of it in a, it in a way that's a that's a blessing, and but. Yeah, This is the, one of the interesting things about it, of
2: course, that when we're, when we're spreading uh, sort of our form of government around the world, it ends up not being our form of government. It ends up being a parliamentarian form of government or really a, de- uh, a, a more democratic view in terms of majority rule. When we've, I mean, in, in our original founding, we've had a counter majoritarian sort of constitution that has all these kinds of checks on, on pure majority rule or, or pure mm-hmm. democracy. And so, on the one hand, yeah, we're, we've got the idea that we're spreading it, but, um, you know, people maybe can't handle what we had. So um, we're going to tailor it to them. And it ends up not being at all the same thing that we're exporting.
1: A love of liberty historically has been one of those things that certainly made Americans exceptional. But when liberty is conflated with democracy, I think that's uh, that's what's leading to much confusion and disagreement and dispute among Americans now. Uh, and that was the, the type of I guess that's what happened also in the 1840s and 1850s with the Jacksonian Democrats, who then, in the name of the people, uh, removed Indians from their land and also conquered Mexico, thinking that God had given Americans the United States, or excuse me, the continent, to be part of the United States.
0: It it seems as though we can say that the there are. Obviously, there are positive and negative consequences that come from that. It seems like the positive side of the coin would be that love of liberty that you talked about, the desire to maintain individual rights and individual responsibilities. Um, that's something I think is is stronger in America than you would see in a place like or in countries in Europe. Um, but the the negative side is that uh, almost uh, that sense of uh, of it's our it's our duty to 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 engage in conquest or to go out and be the sort of the tip of the spear for democracy in the world.
2: Yeah. It's one thing to be an example. It's quite another to be an enforcer of that example. True. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, maybe what we're talking about are two different forms uh, of, of what we could call American exceptionalism, the more chastened form or the original form of it, where we've got this sort of um, mission or uh, task in the world to, to manifest in our own spheres God's rule in our life um, and then the more robust form which is then not only to manifest in our own lives but to go therefore into all the nations um, <laughs> right?
0: The American Great Commission yeah, sort of Right. Mm-hmm. now being born and raised in America I when I hear the terms of um, uh, t- people talking about American exceptionalism it, there, there are some aspects of it that give me a nice warm feeling there's pride in my country and a love of a love of the country, and a love of the principles that undergird the country. But when you talk about things like national pride or nationalism, oftentimes you'll see that there are negative connotations that go along with that. We just have to look at the history of 20th century Europe to know that uh, uh, national pride or nationalism can really go wrong. So let's let's examine a little bit. What's good about American exceptionalism over against sort of the the... the uh, nationalism that we saw in the twentieth century in Europe, especially.
3: Sure, I think um, one thing that we uh, we've talked about briefly before we walked in here was just the exceptional nature of of our revolution and, and the way that we went from uh, a time of bloody revolution and, and kind of casting off the chains of the crown to really transitioning to a period of, of peaceful um, government and where people could prosper and, and Tocqueville came over here and said exceptional things really about this country. And that's kind of that idea of American exceptionalism grows. And you talk about, a, a some very positive things. And you talk about nationalism in the 20th century, just look at, um, and, and there's a religious connection that is too, but I mean, if you look at the 20th century, uh, the strength of America, uh, that was able to really liberate two continents. I mean, even uh, FDR and Eisenhower, they said, uh, what did they say on the D-Day? I mean, there's a famous quote that our army has really come to liberate Christian civilization. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. some truth to that aspect and using your might for good and, and liberating people around the world. So America has a very strong history um, um When you look at, at one side, I think it's dangerous to look at one side and a historian like Howard Zinn and say everything um, about America is wrong and, and that it was a raping and, and conquering conquest nation. But sure. there's a very obviously you don't want to always say a country always wrong, but country uh, right and sometimes wrong in that in that fashion. And look at all the positive things that especially. I mean, look at the very. um strong and, and I, I would say to an extent, a very spiritual way. I mean, Reagan was good with this. He, he was able to draw a lot of, a lot of spiritual inspiration and language during the Cold War when he talked about the dangers of atheistic communism. And and that was very, very important for, um, freedom lasting and, and preserving in the free world.
1: You know, Americans are of course as capable of sinning as other individuals uh individually and collectively. And uh something something Ray just just mentioned about World War II, you know, that was an imperfect country, still practicing segregation, oh, yeah. that was able to free those those continents and was able to face off the Soviet Union uh, and its gulag and, and its oppressive governments and satellite countries. And I think that's something important to remember then, because the way I define patriotism uh, to my students at Aquinas College is I describe it like love of family. And I tell them, you, you love your family because they're your family, not because they're perfect, Mm-hmm. not because they deserve it but simply because of your family and that's true patriotism coming from the latin root of just you know love of your fathers the type of nationalism that then goes to say that my family's better than anybody else's and now we need to conquer the neighborhood and the world <laughs> yeah. that's when it's that's when it's perverted and i'm not sure europeans could understand the american sense of patriotism because of their history I think contextually they're they're less capable of of understanding American patriotism and seeing it as anything other than jingoism, which from time to time it is, but oftentimes it's not.
2: And I think that's a great introduction, that definition of patriotism and relating it to um, the ordered loves that we are to have for others and various social structures is a great way of framing the 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 dividing line between when patriotism goes overboard or something like this and and for Christians I think the the real standard is that um, all of our social relations have been relativized in, into a sort of penultimate sphere relative to our relationship to God our sort of citizenship in heaven is another sort of language you can use the idea that we're sojourners in this world and so that what it doesn't do is it, on the one hand it doesn't destroy those relations. Um, it refashions them and relativizes them and prioritizes them relative to our ultimate concerns, our ultimate telos, our ultimate um, end, um, and so that that becomes the norm by which I think that, that Christians can have a proper, healthy love of our neighbors, our family members, um, our 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 nation, and and our neighbors around the world as well.
0: Jordan Baller, the executive editor of Acton's uh, Journal of Markets and Morality, thank you.
2: Thank you, Mark, for having
0: me. Ray Nostein, the uh, managing editor of Religion and Liberty here at the Acton Institute. Thank you again, Mark. And thank you to Dr. John C. Pinheiro, coming in from Aquinas College. It's Uh, a pleasure as always. You can pick up his book, Manifest Ambition, James K. Polk and Civil-Military Relations During the Mexican War at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or any of the Major online retailers should have it. Thanks again to all our guests, and thank you for tuning in to the podcast of the Acton Institute. This has been Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark VanderMoss. Thanks so much for listening.